Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. Uh, actually, kind of a funny story is I first came across him when I was about 18 years old. And I, my cross-country coach in high school would take a couple runners every year to this 5K, 10K run in the Twin Cities in Minnesota in the middle of the winter. So it was kind of a, like a incentive to get us to recognize how meaningful training in the offseason might be. And we were talking about running and things like that along the way. And I was not really familiar with even what an ultra marathon was at the time. But we got on to talking. He brought up this guy who had run like at the time it was like 265 miles without sleeping. I just remember thinking, man, that's crazy. And then he said, yeah, but he's got a goal to run like 300. And I think ultimately, maybe a year or so after that, you ended up running like 350 miles or something like that without, without sleeping. So today I welcome onto the show, uh, Dean Carnassus, the ultra marathon man. Dean, thanks for taking some time. It's good to be on the show. Thanks for having me on, Zach. Yeah. And uh, Nicole's going to be joining us here today. And she's actually just getting in here. She was <laughs> finishing up a work call. So um a little wire to wire today, but Nicole, <laughs> for Nicole's helped me uh, co-host some of these episodes and a lot of listeners probably know her as Nicole Bitter because she was generous enough to give up her last name and take on mine when we got married. But her actual last name is uh, Kalidropoulos, which uh, it doesn't, mis- people don't mistake her for, for non-Greek. So Dean and Nicole kind of have that, that Greek heritage in their background as well, I think. Right, Dean? Yeah. And my wife went the other way. She went from, her last name was Abbott. And she went to, you know, to Carnassus and she's like, <laughs> yes. you know, you know what it's like, Nicole, right? It got easier oh, for you. I lucked out. My sister-in-law went from um, now has Kelladropolis as her um, married name. So <laughs> definitely not the right way to go. So I apologize to your wife. <laughs> Yeah, Dean, it was uh, it was interesting when when I reached out to you, it was partly because I think you'll be a great guest for this podcast, but also because um, a little selfishly admitted, I'll be doing a, a big event this September uh, that you're very familiar with called the Transcon we're on where you run from San Francisco to New York and essentially live on the road for, uh, depending on how long it takes, the better part of uh, <clears throat> weeks to months. And uh you have the unique experience of doing it in both directions. So I thought maybe you'd be able to poke some holes in our plans or tell us some of the exciting things that happened along the way with that, as well as talk about kind of your new book, A Runner's High, that just recently came out. Yeah, no, that's a good segue. I, um, you know, I ran across the country in both directions, and I would highly recommend um, running from west to east because doing it the other way around, you're basically facing a headwind 
the whole way, <laughs> which you don't want. Yeah. Especially if you're going for a record. I don't know. Are you, uh, I mean, I imagine your intention is to break hard, uh, the record. Yeah. You know, the big driver here, I'm doing it for a charity. So I want to make sure I don't do anything too stupid and end up getting like high and dry in the Midwest somewhere. So I'll be mindful of that if it seems like it's just not something I'm going to be able to stick to, but just running the numbers, I think it's something that is within reach if I have things go well. So I'll definitely be kind of having my eye on that as well, going across it. You know, Pete Koselnick, we had him on the show actually a couple episodes ago, and he was kind of breaking down his strategy and what all went into that. And and I think he averaged just over 72 and a half miles or something per day. And and that was with a day off too, because he, he aggravated a tendon going over the Sierras early on and ended up just uh, resting that for a day. And then banging out a bunch of 80 mile days after that. So it's a tall order, but I think it'd be a fun challenge to kind of keep in, keep in mind while, while moving across. Yeah. And I mean, the, when, when I went um, from West to East, it was actually on a television show called uh, live with Regis and Kelly. Yeah. So I was kind of beholden to their production schedule, which was kind of bizarre. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I was only averaging between 40 and 50 miles a day. I mean, one day I think I ran 80 just cause I couldn't sleep and I'm like, I'm going to run, but I kind of like, you know, I'd get ahead of the schedule and they'd say, you got to slow down because you need to be at this, you know, juncture at this time for the interview. So mm-hmm. it was it was bizarre in that regard, but it was for charity. So it was a good, a good cause. And so I went with it, but it wasn't, you know, it was 75 days for me. And um, I read about uh, a funny experience I had when I was getting into Washington, DC. Uh, I got a call from someone and she said, um, Hey, I'm from the white house. There's someone that wants to meet you here. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure. You know, you're from the White House, right? Uh, who's this person? And she said, well, her name is Michelle. Like Michelle wants to meet you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm thinking it's like a security guard, you know, or a chef or something. And I'm like, Michelle, who? And she says, well, her last name's Obama. Like, do you know who Michelle Obama is? Heard of her? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I've been running across the country for 65 days, but I know who Michelle Obama is. <laughs> so I literally uh, ran into the White House, ran right down the hallway of the White House. And hung a left out to the South Lawn, and there was Michelle Obama waiting for me. Oh, so that's right so cool. Yeah, I loved that happened. in your book. Yeah. It was a bizarre experience, Nicole. I mean, can you imagine? No. Just run, I, you know, running for 65 days out by yourself, and all of a sudden you're like, you know, hugging the first lady. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds exceptional for sure. You have so many good memories that are captured in your book, but I'm sure just overall from a lifetime perspective, I mean, I think just getting to run in so many different countries, I just think that's always something that's fun to kind of look back on. Wow. And right now, more so than ever, mm-hmm. you know, when, uh, you know, when are we, are we going to be able to run again in different countries? I'm, I'm supposed to go to Greece in June. Oh. And it's looking like the um, the event's going to be pushed back to October. And hopefully I'm going to run across Australia in, in August. And that's looking pretty good. But, you know, we're still kind of, well, you know, it's kind of a waiting game still to see, you know, how, uh, how the rollout of the vaccine goes. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting because perspective, I know, like, it seems like, well, here in Arizona, we've had basically universal access, regardless of age, for maybe like what probably eight or nine weeks at this point, but you know, I've got a coaching client over in um, Taiwan who, uh, you know, they, they, they got no future look at one at the moment. And uh, you know, they were just out in a lockdown in some cities too. So it's uh, you know, you can take that for granted pretty quickly, how quickly it's seemed to roll out here in the States. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, the other funny thing about that is uh, we were actually planning on doing the transcon project in 2020 and 
when March rolled through, I was like, there's just no way that's going to happen. And yeah. looking back on it, though, isolating yourself in an RV with a couple people you'd be living with anyway is maybe the only thing we could have done <laughs> you know, realistically for the most part. So, um, <clears throat> but you know how it is, like you can't really turn that around on a moment's notice. So we we punted it to this year. And it, I'd be interested in your take on this, especially when you went east to west. Um, from what I've seen and what Pete kind of shared with me is like, it's just kind of like a tight time window where you can, if you're starting in San Fran, uh, of getting over the Sierras before winter sets in, but not so hot that you're kind of the middle of the summer, but also getting to the East Coast before real winter sets in over there kind of puts you at like an early September, like starting point in most cases. Is that kind of what you did too? Or were you just like, weather be damned, I'm going to go through anything? Yeah, well, I mean, the, when I went west to east, it was, again, a, a television show. So they had me starting in late February and finishing uh, at their studio in Manhattan in May. And that was just their production schedule. I mean, they, yeah. you know, they, they viewed this. They didn't care about me running. They're like, we got television you know, programming we got to adhere to. Uh, when I went um, east to west, uh, I actually left after the New York City Marathon, which is in November, if you, if you know that, that first week of November, which was stupid. <laughs> And not only that, I was self-supported, so I was um, I was just pushing a, uh, a you know jog stroller uh, with all my stuff in it and against a headwind. Thankfully, the weather cooperated. Like I, I got through all the winter, you know, only got hit by one winter storm, and kind of got toward the West Coast uh, in time to avoid all that. But you never know. I mean, you know, you can it, the Rockies to me uh, is the you know the the area. Are you are you going to go the southern or northern route? Which route are you following? I'm going to do the exact same route that Pete did. So we'll go like kind of through Nevada and just kind of, I guess it's, that's the Northern route, I think, right? The Southern route goes quite a bit South, if I'm not mistaken. So you're going over, you're going through Chicago, um, uh, Colorado. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, the Rockies, you know, in, in September, you never know. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You can get, you can get a you know, pretty heavy storm coming through at that time of year. It's, it's, it's tricky. And I think the storm might not slow you down, but if the vehicle gets held up, that could be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. The Pete was talking about that. He said, uh, you know, there's a chance that you could get hit with something big. Um, he, he seemed to think it was a pretty low chance. That would be like snow related in the sense that it would be, you know, in a ditch with the RV or something like that. But you, you do never know. And it's just one of those things where that I think is kind of the interesting part about this project is just, there are things that you have to have kind of firmed up your T's crossed and your eyes dotted. And if you don't, it's just silly kind of not to. And then there's other things like weather and just day-to-day things like maybe blisters or, you know, you don't sleep good the night before that you really can't fine tune or predict. And you just have to really respond to it or be willing to respond to those things and adjust accordingly. Is that kind of how you went about those projects? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, you know, the first six days are the toughest. I got to be honest. And everyone I talked with and doing my research said the same thing. They said, if you can get through the first six days, because, you know, you're, you're, those are some pretty heavy miles mm-hmm. back to back. And if you can get through that, um, your body kind of adapts after six days. And I think Pete kind of experienced the same thing. He kind of broke down, got through it and uh, kept going. Mm-hmm. Basically, every person I've talked to so far who's done these like long stage multi-day things is said that exact same thing where you kind of have this like rock bottom pretty early and it's easy for in your mind to get to this point where you're like, how can it get linearly worse every day for another like few weeks? But you do hit that spot where then your body almost just accepts it and starts getting a little stronger actually. And 
gets a little smoother going. Um, and did, didn't you have like an, you had some, uh, research stuff done on you on one of your bigger efforts once too, where they were actually looking at that type of stuff where like the rate of recovery and things were, am I remembering that properly? Yeah. That when I did 50 marathons in 50 States in 50 days, it was a Carmichael training system. So, you know, Jason Coop, you guys, I think know, uh, mm-hmm. Jason Coop, he, he was taking blood and the university of Colorado was like looking at, um, you know, all the biomarkers that are kind of commonplace nowadays, you know, looking at uh, muscle turnover, um, CPK, you know, all those sort of things. And you're right. The first six days were the worst. And it, it looked like it was spiking, like, oh, gosh, it's not going to end well. And then it plateaued. And then slowly the levels went back down to below normal. Mm-hmm. It kind of just it overcompensated in both directions. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like there's I mean, we put these limitations on our bodies or physical bodies. But in reality, I like a lot of it is, you know, all up in the head for the for a huge portion of it, which which I think is one of the cool lessons that just ultra marathoning and I guess these multi-day stage stuff is probably even more apparent. They're going to are teaching, teaching us about things like that. Well, I, you know, I encourage you, I mean, I mean, you're going to be very focused. I know that, but I encourage you to share as much as you can, you know, via social media or whatever channel you're going to use, because it's a great experience. I mean, don't, don't lose sight of the experience. You know, I, I know for someone who's very competitive, your head is going to be kind of in, you know, breaking the record, but if you can savor the experience, it's, it's really remarkable running across the country and the people you meet, you know, in the areas you pass through. And, you know, I, I uh, have you heard about Pie City in New Mexico? No. <laughs> Do some research on Pie City. Okay. Yeah. And well, they'll make it like they made me a pie. I think they oh, really? all, all trans cons runners, they know about they're a bunch of runners, but there's a, a pie factory in, New, in the desert, New Mexico, and they make the best pies ever. It's so random. <laughs> that's funny and uh, you're not turning down calories when you're running to the tune of like 50 plus miles a day either so that pie is probably very welcome <laughs> pie, yeah and um uh there's a uh, there's a yacht club in arizona courtside yacht club they hosted me so their motto is uh long time no see get it it's oh arizona. yeah <laughs> no sea <laughs> yeah <laughs> They were a bunch of drunken partiers. They had a yacht club in the middle of the desert. I'm like, you guys are crazy. Yeah. They must have good hangers. <laughs> um, I know Nicole has some questions about the crewing aspect of something like this, because she is going to be joining me in the RV. Uh, thankfully, I wouldn't want to go that long without her. And she's going to be my right hand woman for this type of thing. She's not going to drive it. And I'm sure she's <laughs> glad about that. And thankful or I'm glad about that too. But, <laughs> yes. um, but she is interested in kind of like what your perspective is in terms of, you know, when obviously when you're doing the self-supported thing, it's a whole different adventure. But uh, the crewing side of it, there's you're going to make up some speed there, but you're essentially leaning on other folks. So, Nicole, do you have any crew related questions for Dean? Yeah. So, um, you know, in terms of just any tips on the road, what do you have in terms of um, advice for, um, for me as I go about trying to crew and support Zach? You know, I, I always say lead with your ears. You know, we, uh, we tend to want to ask, you know, just suggest it's a lot of things to a runner. Like, do you want this? Do you want that? Do you want this? And, you know, Zach, he's going to be out there running. He's going to know exactly what he wants. So instead of like recommending all this stuff and you, you seem to listen pretty well, but like when I, my, my parents crew for me, <laughs> They're horrible. Like, hey, do you want this? Do you want to try this? Do you want to do this? I'm like, no, no, I need this and this and this and this. 
So, you know, listen to what Zach requests. Um, you know, the other thing is, you know, relentless forward progress. You, you know, I mean, even if you're walking, you're moving forward. So everything you do, the more you can keep moving forward, you know, be that meals, whatever, uh, just keep moving forward. And I guess the other tricky thing is, the, like I didn't handle my own logistics when I did it uh, west to, to east. So, you know, finding out where you can stay that's close enough to where you're ending. And that's a little, you know, that's something I don't have much experience with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all helpful advice. And that's something that I think we're definitely looking into because I think it's just, there are so many complexities that you don't even consider until you probably get out there. And then you start to realize I have to do laundry, um, just little things of the food, right? The amount of calories you'll eat and need to sustain um, even the little nuances. So we're trying to bring our, um, our senior pup along. She's about 12 and a half. So she's going to be along for the journey, but just figuring out how to make her comfortable. So there's, so many things to consider. I'm planning to work during the adventure. So we'll, we'll get a good sense of where there's strong internet um, out there. <laughs> so I'm planning to compile some type of list, but I've been told there's a better app for that. So that will be helpful. Well, yeah. you know, the other thing I think you should prepare for is that uh, people will join you. I mean, even if you don't welcome people, yeah. you don't like, come, <laughs> hey, come join me you'll be amazed. I mean, I don't know how people found me out there, but people show up everywhere to run with you. And it's great, but it can be somewhat of a distraction. And, you know, I, I mean, with COVID, it's a, it's a little bit different altogether, but just be prepared for people showing up randomly to come run with you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know how much of a conversationalist you are while you're running, especially <laughs> if you're, you know, if you're trying to set a transcon record, but people want to chat, you know, they're very curious. And, you know, just prepare for that. Sure. That's what Pete said, too. And he said he did his for, for a record for a record effort. You know, Pete was 42 days, six hours and 30 minutes. Um, he said like he he kept it relatively under the radar for the most part. And he still had a bunch of people figuring out where he was and checking in <laughs> and jumping in, which which I think is, you know, obviously there's a balance there. Um, but. I also won't mind some distractions, I think, <laughs> from a from a from a boredom standpoint, perhaps. So uh, uh, I think that'll be kind of a fun thing to do. It, um, one thing I was going to ask you was when you went across, we're kind of juggling an idea. We're going to have an RV, which we'll stay in uh, for some of it. But there's also once you get past the Sierra's fairly regular hotel options, too. Were you doing kind of a combination type with that? Because I know you had a fairly I had like an RV or a bus, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we, we mostly stayed in the RV, but when I say RV, I mean, this was a tour bus, like a you know big Proverse. It was huge and it had uh, bunk beds for the crew. So we were all kind of crashing out in that most of the time, but we did also stay in hotels. So it was kind of a combination of both. You know, sometimes just being able to shower and so forth in a full-size shower is kind of nice. Yeah, that's kind of what we were anticipating. We were thinking, the first thing I did is like, I wonder if there's a way to do this in like a big van and stay in a hotel every night mm -hmm. if you plan it right. And then like, as soon as I started mapping out the first like five, 600 miles, like that's not going to work for the first week <laughs> at least. You know, the closer you can, like the closer you can stay to where you stop the run for that day, the better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there might be a, a, a place you can just pull your RV versus, you know, driving 20 or 30 miles to a hotel. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, as soon as you get up, Zach, you want to be moving. I mean, the yeah. quicker you can just start turning the legs over, the better. Yeah, and you you probably have the odd day too where oh I woke up an hour or two hours earlier than I anticipated. Now I got to get everyone else up to accommodate my my newly acquired schedule. <laughs> yeah, no, I did that. I drove my crew crazy because sometimes I didn't want to wake them up. I felt so bad, so I just slip out the door and start running. You know, if you're on a straight road forever, mm-hmm. I figure they'll just catch up with me, and then I'd like lose cell service and I <laughs> I couldn't text them or anything, and they'd eventually find me. I'd be like dehydrated and hungry and yeah. This episode of HPO is made possible through our friends at Bioptimizers and their new product, Cognibiotics. Negative feelings and mood can be impacted by the health of your gut. So serotonin has been linked to happiness, much of which is created in your gut. If your gut health is off, it can lead to negative outcomes such as loss of happiness and positivity. Bioptimizers has aimed at tackling this with their product, Cognibiotics, which they call their Breakthrough Mood Enhancer. This formula starts with a solid foundation of prebiotics and probiotics to support gut health and positive feelings in a safe and natural way. Cognibiotics also includes 17 herbs that are linked to enhanced mood, stress management, and improved memory. One of my personal favorite aspects of trying any of Bioptimizers products is their full one-year money-back guarantee So you don't have to take their word for it. Just try it out. See for yourself risk-free. Head over to www.cognibiotics.com forward slash human. That's www.cognibiotics.com forward slash H-U-M-A-N. And throw in promo code HUMAN10. That's capital H-U-M-A-N. One zero for ten percent off your next order. All right, now back to the show. That's that's funny. Um, yeah. So, Dean, I mean, Dean, you've done so many things in the sport. I mean, you've been in the sport. I've, I feel like I've been in the sport forever. I'm sure Nicole kind of feels the same way. And you you've been doing this longer than us, and 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 a lot of variants too. If you could pick um one event or project that you've done that really sticks out as like this was like one that is like I'll remember forever and will stand out in, in the in the masses of things I've done which one would you maybe point to you know this might sound funny uh, but uh, I ran a 10k one time with my daughter Alexandria on her 10th birthday and that still to me is the most special race I've ever done I, I, it'd be hard to surpass that one I don't know why it was you know she came to me she wanted to run a 10k she, we trained together and just when we crossed that finish line it was such a special moment that that one sticks with me you know i mean certainly like do you know can you see these two things yeah you know what those are um no or, the Olympic. oh the olympic torches yeah yeah they let you uh keep the torch so i've carried the torch a couple times that was a pretty special moment yeah well and then and- also now that i'm thinking about it, can you see those things yeah those are uh so the television show is on at the uh, end of the transcon they had my shoes bronze those are bronze shoes oh wow well you got to do that for zach's shoes <laughs> <laughs> yes it sounds like uh, something i'll be exploring for sure the question is what number pair is that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i went and you know i i was running in north face trail shoes it's just because i was sponsored by north face uh-huh. and i you know and not ideal <laughs> <Or from> ideal <laughs> 
<laughs> you got it across though. So that was good. Yeah. Yes. No, I thought that was one of the impressions in your book, just um, the relationship that running kind of brings with your family. It's also intertwined, right? Like, so you talk a lot in your book about just how your son and your parents were out crewing for you at Western States. And you know, I think that was really special, like in terms of a reflection. And I know Zach and I feel the same. It's like when you think back to special races, a lot of times it's just you you don't even remember necessarily what where you finished. You remember the people that were surrounding you. And that's what really makes the impact. So um, I like that you said your daughter's um, 10K was one of the more special ones. Yeah, I mean, no runners in Ireland. You guys know that. I mean, running the way, especially the way we do, it involves anyone in your life and your relationships are impacted, your family's impacted. And to, you know, to write a book about running and not include your family, I don't think it'd be a, a very honest book. I mean, you know, my folks have crewed for me since the very first Western States back in 1993. And, you know, they've been there all along, which is bizarre, right? I mean, 30 years later, <laughs> mom and dad are still crewing for me, but it's, it's really brought us together in a, in a unique way. Yeah, for sure. I think it, the interesting thing is it, it is, you know, one thing we've talked about is just kind of how the sport can be kind of selfish in the sense that you're, you're working on this like goal or this project that uh, you're trying to do, but you know, minus the self-support and stuff, all, even though, even though those a lot of times are sacrifices made by the people around you in order for you to do it uh, is sometimes kind of the unsung heroes of it. And, uh, you know, that's one of the drivers for me with the Transcon project in general is, you know, kind of giving back. And that's why I want to do it for like a charitable foundation to try to, you know, take a little bit of what I've experienced through the years running and try to give back with it as well as, uh, you know, get all the, you know, the, the, the excitement of crossing a finish line or finishing a project and that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, I think it's tremendous. I mean, you're, you're a very visible character. So using, you know, your quote unquote celebrity or, you know, you want to call it your notoriety to help, um, you know, with a cause, it brings, you know, a deeper level of meaning to running, right? I mean, it's, you're now you're leveraging, you know, everything you've built through your hard work and effort to help others. And I really, I admire that. Yeah, well, thank you. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's an honor to hear that from you, Dina. Um, one thing, uh, not, not to transition completely here, but one thing I wanted to ask you about, because uh, one thing that I'm sure you get this question all the time, but it always stuck out or sticks out. And I think when I read your first book, Ultra Marathon Man, I want to say I was a sophomore in college. And uh, I just remember your story about, you know, when you first started doing these long runs and the way you stayed on top of fueling was ordering a pizza and having a meet you at like a intersection somewhere out in the middle of the route. And then you just burrito style roll the pizza and, and eat it and then keep on kind of trucking along. And I think a lot of people in the ultra running community, they have their own kind of unique uh, kind of goofy fueling story. But a lot of times, you know, ultra marathon runners, they'll find something that works for them and they'll, you do it till it doesn't work or till they find something better. And it kind of evolves over time. So I'm curious with you, how long you've been in the sport and how many just different projects and races you've done how has kind of like your nutrition and your fueling strategies kind of evolved over the years? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that I'll never, never live down that story of ordering a pizza <laughs> while it's on a run. But yeah, I mean, let me set the stage. So, I, you know, I'd run a 100 mile foot race. I, I ran Western States, then I ran Badwater, which is 135. 
And I thought I could go further, but I couldn't find a race that was anything further. So I signed up for a 200 mile 12 person relay race, but just as a team of one. And, you know, again, this is back in you know, the early nineties where there were, you know, now it's kind of commonplace. There are a lot of 200 mile races, but there was nothing like that back then. And that was the only thing I could find. So I took this race on completely unprepared, not knowing what I was getting myself into. And I was stranded in the middle of the night with no crew. You know, all I had was a backpack a, and a, a cell phone and a credit card. So it just, it felt logical. Like just order pizza, of course. <laughs> and um, I told the guys, I said at the, uh, at the pizza store, I told them, don't slice it so, and make it with a really thin crust. And so when they delivered it to me, I rolled it up in this big Italian burrito and just mowed it as I ran. And it was so good. It got all over me, but it was just so good. And also I got the Hawaiian style because I figured the pepperoni would be too spicy. And I know it's very controversial now that I had pineapple on my pizza, right? <laughs> <laughs> but inevitably, because my book is in print in 22 different languages, whenever I go to like a fun run, you know, in Italy or especially in Italy, they got good pizza or, you know, in Australia and Asia, there's a pizza delivered to us. Like it's like an ongoing joke. Like people just have pizzas delivered to us wherever we're at. And this might be like a, you know, a 5k fun run, a group run <laughs> that shows up. Well, you haven't paid for a pizza in almost 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, ironically, I really, I don't eat pizza anymore. I mean, I do if someone delivers it to me, but I've really changed my diet a lot, my everyday diet. So now, um, you know, if I can't, uh, pick it from a tree or dig it from the earth or catch it with my hands, I don't eat it. So, you know, nothing refined or processed, uh, you know, no, you, like you can't take a piece of wheat or an oat and, you know, pick it from the field and put it in your mouth. It's got to be processed by a machine. So I don't eat any, you know, bread, pasta, cereal, anything like that. Yeah. That's always an interesting like evolution. I think to nutrition with like anyone who's burning a ton of calories or, doing something that's real physically demanding is the first thought is I need everything I can get my hands on. And then you realize like it's all, you almost have to be a little more picky to a degree because you're asking so much of your body. You have to be focused on, well, what are the actual things that are going to help me recover and get back out here and do it day after day versus, you know, kind of being a fizzle and a pop and then not around anymore because your dietary habits were so bad that they, you know, they sidelined you at some point. And you're, I mean, you're, you, I follow your diet a bit. Are you paleo and keto or just primarily paleo? I guess if you'd put me in a category, it'd probably just be low carbohydrate. Um, I'll be kind of closer to keto, like strict keto. If you're looking at it as like, kind of like a 50 grams or less per day, where you're almost eliminating carbohydrates altogether, you know, I'll have like stretches where my training is at its highest, where I'll be getting up to maybe like 20% carbohydrate in the rare couple days or few days a year where I'll maybe hit 30%. Uh, my intake in carbohydrates. Uh, but I mean, similar to you, like, unless I'm like going through like the full process of like fermenting and going like sourdough bread, I'm not doing a lot of grains and that sort of stuff for the most part, mostly like root vegetables and things from the carbohydrate side of things, fruits for the carbohydrate side of things. And when I'm racing, I'll use a product by a company called S fuels. Uh, and then, um, yeah, I'm doing a lot of kind of like fattier stuff, protein based stuff and kind of keeping the carbohydrates relatively low. So I probably wouldn't fit perfectly into the paleo definition, although I, I'm probably very close in a lot of cases. And there's certainly days, if not weeks at a time, where I probably fit very cleanly within it. Um, 
yeah, people, I think I confuse as many people as I inform with my diet, just because when I look at my periodized schedule, I kind of periodize my nutrition as well. So then inevitably someone picks out one week and thinks, okay, this is, this is what he does. And then someone picks out a completely different week and they're like, no, that's what he does. And <laughs> I'm sure you both get an overwhelming amount of questions related to your diet. So <laughs> Nicole, how's your, what, like, what kind of diet do you follow? You know, I probably have more of a low carbohydrate diet, but I kind of eat carbs more strategically as how I've been taught to phrase it um, from learning so much about nutrition, I guess, being married to Zach, which is good. Um, but I generally eat um, fairly similar in some cases to Zach, but I probably do have more carbs on a regular basis, just overall. Um, and, and your what kind of fats do you eat? Like, what are, what are your main sources of fat? Yeah. So I, I mostly, my, my preferred source of fat is fish. I love salmon. So if I could have that every day, I probably would. She almost I does. Am, <laughs> I'm just, I, love, I'm, I'm right with you. Yeah. Yes. I love salmon, but I'll eat all kinds of meats. I, avocados. Um, yeah. Avocados, um, turkey, chicken, of steak. I, um, you know, I, I definitely, eat, but I would say probably salmon is my go-to if I can have the opportunity. Have you discovered sardines? I have. Yes. And those are tasty too. Yeah. That's kind of my go-to. Were there, yeah. were there any sardines with the pineapple on your pizza? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that was the first time I ever had a sardine. talking about uh, food now. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I, I can't remember how old I was actually, it was probably maybe like 10. First time I had a sardine and my family went on a vacation up to Canada and we stopped at a pizza place and my dad was like, well, let's get a sardine pizza. And we're like, what <laughs> little fish on your pizza? And then we, I remember eating and thinking, oh, it just, it's a lot saltier then. It, it was fine with them after that. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty strong. So are you um, big into Greek food? You have to let us know what is your favorite um, delicacy there. Savvy, you know, I mean, seafood, yeah. me, I, you just can't get over grilled fish or, you know, octopus, grilled octopus. Yes. You know, with some olive oil and some lemon. I, I tend to crave the, you know, the, the savory things. I'm, I'm not such a sweet, I don't have much of a sweet tooth at all, but once in a while, a piece of baklava is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. um, you know, we grew up going to Greece as kids and we would go every couple of years because all of my dad's family lived over there. So it was just this huge, you know, family reunion for a month um, when we would go over there. And I just always have such memories of my aunts and their cooking. And it's just, they were the most amazing cooks, but something about the produce as when we were kids over there, it was just like no other. And I know it's changed a lot, unfortunately, but um, something about those Greek salads. You just couldn't make a Greek salad the same way with the um, cucumbers and tomatoes and feta. And it was it was just so delicious, olive oil. I mean, how did they make a tomato taste so good in Greece? It like, just I don't, was I don't phenomenal. It, but... I know. And yeah. I know, Zach, you went for the first time um, now it's been a couple of year years, a yeah, a year and a half ago, but it just, it, it's not the same anymore. They've just, they've globalized, right? It's, it's just, but 20 years ago you had produce there and it was just, it was at a different level. Like you would bite into a peach and you'd be like, wow, this is amazing. 
<laughs> well, I mean, when you get out of Athens, it's still the same. Yeah. I mean, okay, good. Yeah. No, I mean, you go out to the Peloponnese or some of the yeah. islands and it's exact, it's, it hasn't changed yeah. at all. That's, those are the places I really love. Like my mom yeah. is from an island called Icaria. Okay. Where, uh, Icarus, the guy with the wax wings. Yes. And I mean, it's like stepping back into the 70s or 60s when you go there. It's so nice. Yeah, the food is so good. And they grow it all on the island, so they don't even import yeah. much. Yeah. That's cool. We'll have to check out some of the more like remote yeah. areas. We were at, we, we were on what was Milos, Milos Islands for a fair bit when we were out there. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it was, it's, it was beautiful, but, um, gosh, we need to spend more time out there because every time we go back, it's like, ah, oh, we need to just stay for longer periods of time. And have you guys done the, uh, have you ever done the, like the Athens, they call it the Athens original marathon. Have you ever thought about doing the, just a regular marathon just to do it? No, but we've talked about it. That would be fun. All of our cousins were trying to um, get us to go back. And I, I know Zach definitely on the bucket list is to go back for the Spartathlon. I might be the crew for that one. I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> that that's definitely still a bucket list item. Yeah, yeah when, you go back. when we were over there, that was one of the questions we got. We get a lot was like, are you going to do the marathon at some point? So that you could tell the locals were very in tune with that particular event, along with the Spartathlon. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, a lot of the Greeks don't know about the Spartathlon, which blows my mind. You know, I, but um, all of the Greeks know about the marathon. But yes. everyone knows about that one. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Since we were, you know, for the last couple of years, I just know I'll get messages from my cousins on Facebook, <laughs> like, are you or Zach coming over to do the marathon? So <laughs> we'll have to do that one year. Put that one on <laughs> the short list. Yeah, that's a short, that's a sprint distance, the marathon. Yes. Nicole, <laughs> <laughs> oh. cool. what else do we have from the book that we should share with the listeners? Yeah, well, I would just, I guess I'm going into Western states again this year. And I loved um, your story with your um, your parents and your son crewing for you at Western. But do you have a desire to go back to Western? I'm sure it's, it's still a race that you would go back to. Yeah, I mean, after 13 finishes, you know, I still want to go back. Absolutely. I, I, you know, hopefully I can get to 20 finishes. Um, you know, the thing is, as I write about in the book, it's almost impossible to get in. <clears throat> and, you know, when I was younger, I used to reliably finish in the top 10 and, you know, that just ain't going to happen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I don't ask for any favors. Like I just go through the lottery like everyone else. So hopefully I can get in again, but yeah. you know, every, every runner who runs Western States, has their own unique experience. I mean, Nicole, you were there the same year. Yes. And you read about my experience. Your experience was completely different, I imagine. And yes. you could write a book about it as well, I imagine. No, uh, so many stories from Western. I just feel like it's the race that I just for the last, oh, I guess since 2014, I've just been part of it. And so it's really special. I I'm just trying this year. I'm getting older too. So when I look around at the starting line, I'm like, wow, I'm, you know, right around 40 and I I'm competing against now the, the, the women that are in the top um, 10 are, are in their twenties, you know? So it's, it's really, the sport's really evolving, but um, no, I look at all of your finishes and that's remarkable. Yeah, like I said, it was a lot easier to get in back then. Um, but you, Nicole, you're tough as anything. I mean, you're 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 still pretty much reliably finishing top ten, so you get the 
the entry, or you can even get a golden ticket. Yeah, no, thanks. I, I'm going to try for this year. And then, you know, part of me is like, there's so many races to do. I, I love Western, but there's just so much to explore. And I love the international races. So to me, just getting the chance to go see some interesting places. I think um, we ran the Hong Kong 100K a couple of years ago and just seeing the monkeys come out and run along the side of the course mm -hmm. with you, that was memorable. Um, kind of along those lines, I love in the book, we liked how you talked about your journey um, along the, um, in um, just kind of running through all of the various different countries and how you were approached by the um, the gentleman to come run across this country. So if you can give more background on that, I thought that was incredible, particularly when they had you taste that interesting food. I couldn't, I can't remember what it was called, but. Kumis, yeah. Okay. And you can't, I mean, the countries were Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. And before I went and did this, I didn't, I mean, I could not on a map locate where those countries are. I don't think most people can. I knew it was in Central Asia somewhere. And, you know, I ran as a U.S. athlete ambassador on a sports diplomacy envoy to celebrate 25 years of diplomatic relations between those three countries. And the Silk Road um, joins the three of them together. So I ran 525 kilometers between the capital cities of each of those countries and the experience along the way was, it was crazy in that, I mean, I never, I never heard English once in that two week journey. I never saw a Starbucks, no McDonald's. I mean, you're about as far away from Western culture as you could get. And their traditions are all different, but they're beautiful people and they're so warm and welcoming. And you're right. I, yeah, the first day I ran something like 50 miles across the desert and I came into this township and they, you know, the State Department had like briefed me, like when you get there, everyone is going to be waiting for you. Like this is a big deal to have an American come to their town. Like they've never seen an American before. So I come running down the road and there's thousands of people lining the road. And they said, also, when you when you get to the city center, they're going to have a feast set up for you. They're, they were nomadic people and they're going to have a big feast prepared. You've got to try their food. Like you just have to try a little bit of everything out of respect. And they have a drink, their national drink, and you're going to have to try that as well. <laughs> so I come running into this township, uh, you know, I'm sweating. It's like 100 degrees, 50 miles, I'm dehydrated. And there's these women in traditional costume. And one of them holds out what looked like a half a coconut, like the lower half of a coconut with this white stuff in there that almost looked like coconut milk. And she hands it to me and I, I grab it. I'm just, you know, I'm thinking it's going to be a pina colada or something cool and refreshing. And I drink it and it's warm. And the best description, it tastes like, like champagne with sour cream mixed into it. <laughs> and I almost gagged. I mean, I was like, it was so strong. And later I learned it was uh, something called kumis, which is uh, fermented horse milk. Oh my God. <laughs> Yum, right. <laughs> I remember reading that and I was like, oh gosh, that must've been a surprise. It might be good for your gut. <laughs> <laughs> It was like drinking Parmesan cheese. It was so strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, that is the interesting thing about the, about the sport too. Like, uh, like you said, it kind of opens up your opportunities to travel around the world and experience different cultures along with different races and things like that. And I think, you know, 
even with my time in the sport, which began in end of 2010, I just seen so many more races and different things pop up. So I would imagine for you, you know, you know, going back much further yet, like the landscape of ultra running then, and I mean, you were a big part of this. I mean, a lot of people know of the sport because of some of the stuff you did and some of the books you've written and things like that. So, um, what is it like, I guess, you kind of knowing what it was like back then knowing where it's gotten today. And then also you'll probably be humble about this, but (laughs) knowing you had a big, big part of kind of putting in a spotlight on the sport to the point where now there's, it's just accessible by more people because we have more events. They're like, you can, we live in Phoenix, Arizona. So we're totally spoiled with air viper running, putting on 30 plus races a year. Um, you know, there's probably like hardly even that many opportunities to race across the country back when you started. Yeah, no, there, I mean, I think um, in 1993, the first year I did an ultra, there were 3,500 finishers in North America. And I think in 2019, there was something like 140,000 finishers. So the growth has been phenomenal. Uh, but still, I mean, as we've been discussing, you know, the, these marquee races like Western states are almost impossible to get into. Uh, but the thing I love about our sport is there's still a lot of local, smaller races, you know, with a couple hundred people that have a really great feel to them. So you can, you know, you can choose your, uh, you know, your distance and, and kind of the experience you want based on the race. And mm-hmm. I think ultramarathoning is very colorful in that regard. I think, you know, marathoning has become almost very uniform and largely because of, you know, rock and roll came in and like bought up all the independent races and kind of turned it into a huge series. But ultramarathoning is still, you know, very independent. Like most of these races are independent or, you know, they might have you know, 10 or 15 races, but they're not big national events, you know, with a national presence. And I think that's really unique, you know, with, with Ironman coming in and buying UTMB, I'm sure there's going to be more of that franchise feel to some of the races, which is fine. It's just going to be a different experience than, you know, a local race in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like the, at least, at least in North America, the culture of kind of those like smaller community runs and races will probably always be there. It's just like, you know, how much bigger can the sport get? It's like, I think sometimes when this topic comes up, it gets a little polarizing, kind of like your pineapple pizza, (laughs) but people think it's gotta be one or the other. In reality, I think, you know, if, if, if the demand for small local races is there, there will be small local races. And then if the demand for big production things are there too, then we'll have those options as well. And I think, you know, why not have the option to do, do either or. Yeah. And there's a lot of permutations. I mean, you know, obviously the FKT has become very popular, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of other people that are like, I just want to go on a, like, I just want to go on a, like a one week run just as an adventure. Like I don't, I'm not breaking any records. I'm, you know, it's not a race. It's just a, an adventurous thing to do, like an expedition style ultra marathon. And I love that, you know, the fact that you can just put on a hydration pack, you know, put all your gear in there and take off and run somewhere just for adventure uh, is to me is really refreshing and it's unique and it's not competition. It's just enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's the big part of the sport the meaningful part of the sport for most folks is that like, you know, that, that human powered movement, you can go out there all day with, relatively small amount of resources in fact nicole and i are doing that this weekend we're heading to grand canyon to run some miles <laughs> yeah that's what i mean i mean that's fantastic yeah and i do that every weekend <laughs> myself yeah. awesome I, I know dean that you have uh, a busy schedule so we don't want to take up too much of your time uh but we do want to give you a chance to let our listeners know like where they can find you what you've got coming up if you got anything exciting you want to share 
Yeah, I mean, someone told me if you Google Dean, I'm the first one that comes up. <laughs> I mean, if you, it's not it's not hard to find the people these days. It's but you know, just, sure. just Google my name. I've got a website. You know, I'm on social media. I've got a lot of kind of fun projects coming up. I'm supposed to run ten marathons in in ten days in Greece to celebrate the uh, bicentennial of Greek independence, and that's supposed to be in June. And then I'm just going to run across Australia in August. Uh, which should be pretty exciting. I used to live in Australia. So uh, another ultra marathoner and I uh, put together this race. So that'll be in August. Um, in November, I started a new race here in the San Francisco Bay Area called the um, Golden Gate Trail Classic. And it starts in San Francisco and crosses the Golden Gate Bridge and runs up into the, a place called the Marin Headlands. So you, you, know, you start in the city center and you run up into this gorgeous kind of nature reserve and then you finish by cross, recrossing the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, running into San Francisco. So that's in November if you're interested in uh, a new ultra that just started up. That's very cool. We're both familiar with the, the Marin Headlands trails and it's hard to beat, hard to beat those ones. So I'm sure that mm -hmm. event will be uh, heavily sought after <laughs> as things start to get out about it. But um, Nicole, did you have anything you wanted to add or? No, no. We're just so excited to keep following your adventures and all the amazing things you're doing. You were such an inspiration for both of us. So um, nice to talk with you today. Likewise, you guys. And uh, I'll be tracking on you in September. Have a great time. I mean, just try to enjoy it. I know it's going to be, uh, you know, pretty intense, but try to have some fun as well. Yeah, well, we're gonna we're gonna try to make it as fun as possible. I think that's the only way you can make uh, six plus weeks sustainable <laughs> is if you're having fun out there. So there'll be plenty of updates, social media activation, tech stuff going on while I'm moving across the country uh, slowly but surely. <laughs> well, maybe I'll come track you down and run with you. Awesome! Oh, yeah, you know, we have a spot in the RV for you if you want to hop in for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Dean. Well, thanks again for taking some time. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 